Welcome back to Night School, episode 15, Song of Myself, 1892 version, part 13. And back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Chance. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. It's been a good Saturday, and I've been really enjoying doing this lately. And uh, the last couple shows, we just sort of, uh, you know, we, we, often, we often have a general idea of when we're going to do this, but we don't always know exactly when. And so I'm, I'm really happy that we spent Friday really parsing out that gnarly uh, part 33, which yeah. I, it's interesting that we didn't make the connection. Then there's so many connections to make between that and like the age of Jesus too, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Traditionally, that is the age at which he died, even though Dante thinks 34, but most people disagree with Dante on that point. Uh, also, just one of those ages, Bruce Lee as well, Alexander the Great, supposedly, 33-year-olds. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wait, how old are you? I am 33, too, myself. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. Go wow. figure. Yeah, no, it's an interesting time, very interesting time. You know, well, you know, at least what Dante seems to think and uh, thought mythologically or theologically about the death of Jesus at 34 or in his 35th year as Dante would have said it, he, uh, he said a, a living God would not deign to see the uh, decline of the flesh. Okay. And, and so it's around the time uh, that the Jungians would say one end, enters middle life and one has to sort of change the yeah. trajectory of one's life as one starts uh, down the decline. And so may, maybe that's in a, two years for me, hopefully, but here it comes, you know. Speaking, and speaking of decline, Let's get to 34. Yeah, he's talking about age here. Cool, go for it. Now I tell what I knew in Texas in my early youth. I tell not the fall of Alamo, not one escaped to tell the fall of Alamo. The 150 are dumb yet at Alamo. Tis the tale of the murder and cold blood of 412 young men. Retreating, they'd formed in a hollow square with their baggage of breastworks, 900 lives out of the surrounding enemies, nine times their number. Surprised they took in advance. The colonel was wounded, their ammunition gone. They treated for an honorable capitulation, received writing and seal, gave up their arms, and marched back prisoners of war. They were the glory of the race of rangers. Matchless with horse, rifled song, supper courtship, large, turbulent, generous, handsome, proud and affectionate, bearded, sunburned, dressed in the free costume of hunters, not a single one over 30 years of age. The second first day morning, they were brought out in squads and massacred. It's beautiful early summer. The work commenced about five o'clock and was over by eight. None obeyed the command to kneel. Some made a mad and helpless rush. Some stood stark and straight. A few fell at once, shot in the temple or heart. The living and dead lay together. The maimed and mangled dug in the dirt. The newcomers saw them there. Some half killed, attempted to crawl away. These were dispatched with bayonets or battered with the blunts of muskets. A youth not 17 years old seized his assassin till two more came to release him. The three were all torn and covered with the boy's blood. At 11 o'clock began the burning of the bodies. That is the tale of the murder of the 412 young men. Well, that's different. <laughs> he tells you, yeah, but so he's going to, again, he claims this one as his personal 
knowledge here, which I find kind of interesting. And I don't know whether he's saying this biographically or whether he is saying this from within the persona of a character that he's, he's narrating from, from the perspective of for the purpose of this part of the poem. I really don't know enough uh, to be sure of that. Um, but it's very, it's very interesting that he goes into this from the, the distinction between this story, this anecdote of the 400, the murder of the 412 and, and distinguishes it from the fall of Alamo, um, which I guess even at his time would have been uh, a, a major like national identity sort of story, the sort of thing that people are very proud of and maybe rightly so that they um, trace their connection to that, that sort of formative moment, um, less historical, more mythic, at, at a certain point. And so he's saying, no, I'm not gonna tell the fall of Alamo, I'm gonna tell the murder in cold blood of 412 young men. And so he makes, again, um, a really sharp distinction there. I, again, don't know enough whether this is supposed to be uh, a story from the uh, Mexican-American War or the Civil War or what exactly this historically might refer to. Um, but he seems to want to emphasize how how alive the young men were, right? He kind of goes out of his way to describe them physically and in terms of their skill. Uh, and again, there's that little note about their age, right? They're young, not a single one over 30 years. And then he, the rest of the, the part here describes the, the butchery, essentially, um, the kind of image that comes to mind for me is uh, that Goya painting. It's, it's uh, from the Spanish Civil War where Goya has a patriot standing with his arms thrust out. He's wearing a white shirt against a wall and the soldiers' uh, guns are raised and there's fallen, uh, fallen people below him. So it's, there's a kind of yellow, white, red, um, motif of the Spanish uh, national colors there in that painting, um, and, and it's it's a depiction of an execution. That's that's the image that comes to mind here. His is obviously um, Goya's. That is 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 sort of more symbolic, uh, obviously um, more typical. It's got that one individual. Whereas Whitman's, of course, he's all about this as a massive a mass murder, right? A, a group event. And within it, you get this, um, this kind of portrayal of all of the different ways that the, the men tried to escape and were uh, unsuccessful. It's, um, it's very matter of fact at the end though, right? This is the, t that 11 o'clock began the burning of the bodies. That is the tale of the murder of 412 young men. Yeah, and I see in it as well, just two epic conventions. A, the portrayal of a scene of battle from a contemporary time. That's done, of course, in Homer's Iliad, also Virgil's Aeneid, and also Ovid's Metamorphoses at the Battle of the Centaurs versus the Lapiths. Uh, in the Aeneid, uh, the Latins versus the Trojans. And in the Iliad, the Trojans versus the Achaeans, Argives, or Danaeans. 
And also sort of another epic convention is this jump from the naturalistic aspects of existence to the sort of human negative, like terrible things that can happen through the nature of man, like the four deadly plagues or whatever they are, right? Like there's, there's famine, plague, death, and war, right? The four horsemen, four horsemen. And now he's hitting one of those and showing mm -hmm. it. And so he's jumped from being like, man, ants are really cool to here's war, guys. Right. Um, <laughs> and it is also part of his universalism, but also a recognition, I think, of something that is atrocious in man or the, the atrocity, the part of existence which is atrocity. He doesn't shy away from it. Right. Um, yeah, and the burning of the bodies is also an image straight from you know, not only the history of the South after the, you know, Civil War, but also, you know, the Iliad as well. Very famous uh, burning of the bodies of several heroes during the course of the Iliad. Um, right. And uh, a moment, a time of great moment when days are taken off the battle for sport to distribute goods in honor of the person. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Well... I guess we're we're in a fighting kind of mood here. He's going to go on and tell us another um, battle, it sounds like, coming up. Ready to All go right. on? Yes. All right, so 35. Would you hear of an old-time sea fight? Would you learn who won by the light of the moon and stars? List the yarn as my grandmother's father, the sailor, told it to me. Our foe was no skulk in his ship, I tell you, said he. His was the surly English pluck, and there is no tougher or truer, and never was and never will be. Along the lowered eve he came horribly raking us. We closed with him, the yards entangled, the cannon touched. My captain lashed fast with his own hands. We had received some eighteen-pound shots under the water, on our lower gun deck, two large pieces had burst at the first fire, killing all around and blowing up overhead, fighting at sundown, fighting at dark, 10 o'clock at night, the full moon well up, our leaks on the gain and five feet of water reported, the master at arms loosing the prisoners confined in the afterhold to give them a chance for themselves. Transit to and from the magazine is now stopped by the sentinels, they see so many strange faces they do not know whom to trust. Our frigate takes fire. The others asks if we demand quarter, if our colors are struck and the fighting done. Now I laugh content, for I hear the voice of my little cap. We have not struck, he composedly cries. We have just begun our part of the fighting. Only three guns are in use. One is directed by the captain himself against the enemy's mainmast. Two well served with grape and canister silence his musketry and clear his decks. Decks, the tops alone second the fire of this little battery, especially the main top. They hold out bravely during the whole of the action. Not a moment cease. The leaks gain fast on the pumps. The fire eats toward the powder magazine. One of the pumps has been shot away it is generally thought we are sinking. Serene stands the little captain. He is not hurried. His voice is neither high nor low. 
His eyes give more light to us than our battle lanterns. Toward twelve, they're in the beams of the moon. They surrender to us. All right, well, I mean, fascinating part here. So we go from sort of a battle on land to a battle on sea. Sort of uh, uh, recalls to me uh, several Greek and Athenian, particularly uh, famous naval battles, um, though I think I'm thinking of, but I could be making an error right now and just slipping the name, the Battle of Salamis. Um, there's a battle Thucydides tells about, which is um, very, very famous where the, the Athenians almost certainly thought they would lose to the Spartans, but ended up winning the day. Um, and, well, I don't know. I, that may be the story of history. In any case, here we have a sea fight, and that too has been uh, portrayed epically, or, but not, not in this sort of way. Virgil has a, a sea race in the Aeneid, but this may be the first time in epic, I'm not sure that we get the portrayal of a fight between uh, ships. And this is, it, it has a very strong Pirates of the Caribbean theme. You have cannon shooting, you have water in your legs, and things do not look like they're going well, and it is dark at night, and you get this claustrophobic feeling of dying at night in the water, wet. It's just awful. And it is exactly what those epic um, heroes like Achilles fear most. Achilles, in fact, when he makes the mistake of fighting of filling a river with so many bodies that it attempts to kill him with a flood. Um, <laughs> the river Scamandrus, though called Xanthos by the gods, uh, he thinks that he would have preferred to have been killed by Hector on land. At least he could have had the, you know, a proper burial. And that makes sense if part of one's life is the honors one is given at death. And if somebody has concern for that, as the Greek heroes do, because that's how they're made into a cult and become sort of like a god, then uh, death at sea is very scary. And also is sort of the theme of the Odyssey and why it's such a bummer when somebody's lost at sea and you can't confirm that because you're sort of left and in, in between things for the rest of existence. But, but so, what's so interesting is uh, this captain maintains his composure on multiple occasions here, even though things get worse and worse and worse, and then we are, things are on fire. We don't have as many guns in use. Everybody, it's the general idea that we're sinking. It's, it's okay, though. The little captain is keeping us cool. Who, is that consciousness there? Is that a rationality that maintains the passions? Like, like is the opening metaphor of Virgil's Aeneid, where Neptune with the power of a speaker who calms the, the mob, right. uh, uh, the mob being the motivational forces of the emotions, the speaker being the one with the logos, the capacity to think. Neptune then restrains the winds that have caused a storm um, or, you know, like a tantrum or a, an outbreak. And Hera, Hera rules there, Juno in this case. But, but uh, order is restored by the cap the captain, the true master, reason, logos, or consciousness, maybe, uh, if we want to distinguish that. And then, because you keep your head in the bad situation, Athena stays with you, as she says to Odysseus when he returns to Ithaca. They win. Toward mm -hmm. 12 there in the beams of the moon, they surrender to us. And that is a powerful, poetic, and narrative stroke, because we were already to see the message of this part as, or at least I was ready to see it as, man, here's another just terrible thing about existence, but boom, actually this is sort of the opposite. It's like when you try as hard as you can 
and you maintain yourself through the suffering and then you come out on top because of it. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting counterpart to the previous, to number, to part 34 in that way. Cause, cause it does look like it's headed for the same kind of uh, terrible um, tragic end. Uh, and, and yet in a way it's, it's totally different cause, cause we're given the, the enemy in this case is um, sort of honorable, right? He, the grandfather or the grandmother's father, rather, um, the sailor emphasizes how, how tough and how true the, uh, the English were. So I, I take this to be a battle, either maybe the War of 1812 or, or even the Revolution, the Revolutionary War. Um, not sure uh, when, when this historically is supposed to have taken place, but it sounds like uh, they're fighting the English, right? Yeah, and and they're honorable. And and the more that your more that your enemy is honorable and tough, like the greater the victory is, right? Like, it's again that that sort of goes to your point about how this um, this captain uh, kept them calm and sort of outlasted the enemy here. Um, the 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 words of the captain uh, I noticed too are in italics, just like back in thirty three we got a couple of times, and so it seems like this is kind of um, another another new start uh to the poem and um after that that long um that long part 33 but also sort of going back to some of what he was doing in that um and like uh this this makes me think again about sort of the structure of the poem um ways there's there's probably many ways of of representing what whitman is doing structurally thematically, poetically, um, but one of them at least might have to do with um, the words of leaders. And I think that's, you know, to call the leader in this case, the little captain, rather than giving him a particular name, I think does support your idea that it's, it's at least partly an abstraction or allegory or, or symbol of one, that part within you that says, you know, keep fighting, stay calm, um, that you, you're going to prevail and well, the alternative is not even worth con considering, right? Basically. Um, right. And those last three lines of him, serene stands the little captain, not subject to emotion. He is not yeah. hurried. Again, not subject to doing that which would limit his expression of skill. His voice is neither high nor low. Again, he's not afraid. He's not excited. His eyes give more light to us. There's a solar metaphor for him, like Marduk or Apollo or Jesus. Mm. Um, and uh, the idea of shining light on something, also Lion King. Uh, his eyes mm. give more light to us than our battle lanterns. Uh, he, he reveals more to us than, um, than even our, real, our regular eyes do because he gives us information. He doesn't just, you know, see things and... And the way we do, he, he helps us to deduce information from situations. And that's, that does seem to be what a good leader does and what like a good coach does and why they get so upset when you poorly perform because they see the implications of it and why they seem to be so happy when you do well because they see everything that went into that and they can help you articulate that fact. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and I really like your your allusion to um, the opening of the Aeneid. I think that that is totally apt here. Um, but I think it, you know, also you can look at the um, the kinds of suffering that Odysseus goes through uh, in his journey as well. 
and the way that he always, you know, maintains calm, holds back restraints until the time is right. Uh, that that emphasis here on on time and the lateness of the hour, right? It doesn't matter how late it comes as long as the right outcome right. Um, comes about, essentially, right? So it's like I think that's a very Odyssean uh, quality to this captain as well. Yeah, and also not time as simply a linear motion, but time as in seizing mm. the proper moment. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. seeing time in a, a, mo a momentous sort of way, like times of great moment require great action. That's a, I, you know, I think that's to some extent right, you know, um, that there are certainly different times to do different things and they take on, like, for example, being at an amusement park when it's empty as opposed to when there are a bunch of people there. Yeah. or or, you know, playing, playing a sport with like five people as opposed to being in a giant festival with people or a giant competition. Instead, mm -hmm. it's like, it, uh, it's a totally different experience, um, uh, depending on uh, when and how many people are doing the thing. Yeah, well, in any case. Right. Yeah, I, I think this, uh, this goes along with the, the imagery there of the leaks gaining fast on the pumps mm. fire eating toward the powder magazine so it's like those there's kind of a, a personification at least of the fire and uh there's this kind of implication that they're sort of racing against nature um as what they're fighting against not only the enemy the english but also against their own you know decrepit ship <laughs> which is trying to either blow up or sink or both <laughs> so you know it's like everything is stacked against them and again that's like what makes the victory and the story so amazing so worth listening to so it makes me sad think that you're suggesting sort of an obliquely christian interpretation of this which is sort of like like a you exist and nature is trying to kill you and will through entropy you mm. also exist on the ship of the state which is always sinking yeah. and also fighting against other ships of the state and so sinking even faster potentially. And, but ultimately you as human, who is subject to this sinking social sh ship and the sinking physical body ship must transcend that. Mm -hmm. And there's some sort of ultimate victory that you, you gain by, I don't know if it's embodying an eternal role, even though you're subject to, all, of course, to all these forces, you know, my God, my God, why, uh, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Uh, you know, when the body fails, but the, the role remains. Um, but yeah, I just, I was wondering if that's sort of what you were seeing. Mm, yeah, I, it's, it's definitely implied there. I mean, um, again, I think the, the lateness of the victory is part of what uh, makes me think of, about that as well, right? The, um, the temptation of Peter, for example, uh, that he denies Jesus three times before the cock crows, right? Um, that whole dark night of the soul idea that you yes. get in some of the mystics. Um, and, and that, uh, you know, can be also taken um, as a kind of uh, impertinent, I guess would be a word to support, impertinent critique of Christianity where you're like, okay, so let's just imagine like the worst possible human and on their deathbed, they convert and they're saved. Are you kidding me? And it's like, well, I guess the dogmatic Christian answer has to be yes. Yes, that's how it would work. Um, sorry if that offends you. 
<laughs> yeah, so the lateness of the hour, that's a very, to me, a very Christian theme. Yeah, and uh, just, I mean, it also evokes the imagery of, you know, like the Jonah and the whale mm -hmm. and um, Hercules on his night sea journey. Um, just the, uh, and even Pinocchio and Monstro, um, the idea of being in the dark because it's the depths of the sea that are dark and the lit, the hour is late and it's very dark because it's night. Um, uh, but the light of the intellect comes back to you or, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it is if, you know, the faith that you have in the captain or that which is directing the ship is what gets you to the ultimate goal. And well, what, what is that ultimate goal? I suppose I'm wondering. And if we, I think about our most recent Final Fantasy VII piece where Aerie says the promised land is something that you feel while you're doing things. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it is that sort of Aristotelian being at work saying itself, just doing what it is you're meant to be doing, just like how a lion hunts. Perhaps for us, it's something literary, like understanding, like doing this. I, it seems like that's, a, that's implied um, pretty strongly here because, well, um, it's all in the context of telling a story, right? This whole thing is him saying, what do you like to hear, right, of yeah. an old time sea fight? And so he's sort of like leading you into it explicitly from the perspective of a listener to a story, right? Like you're saying, like a, a, a gatherer, a hunter-gatherer of, of words, stories of meaning. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't want to imply that I think Whitman is limiting his, his poem to be read in a particular Christian light or any other, you know, um, particular perspective, but that it's certainly meant to be interpreted in some kind of fashion. And, uh, and it's clearly meant to have some kind of impact on the way you actually live in the world and like your attitude towards, towards life itself. Um, that, that seems clear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, so let's look at 36 very quickly. So I think, how do you feel? How do you feel about Hidden 36? Um, go for it. Stretched and still lies the midnight, two great hulls motionless on the breast of the darkness, our vessel riddled and slowly sinking preparations to pass to the one we have conquered. The captain on the quarter deck coldly giving his orders through a countenance white as a sheet nearby the corpse of the child that served in the cabin. The dead face of an old salt with long white hair and carefully curled whiskers, the flames spite all of all that can be done flickering aloft and below, the husky voices of the two or three officers, yet fit for duty. Formless stacks of bodies and bodies by themselves, dabs of flesh upon the masts and spars, cut of cordage, dangle of rigging, Slight shock of the soothe of waves, black and impassive guns, litter of powder parcels, strong scent, a few large stars overhead, silent and mournful shining, delicate sniffs of sea breeze, smells of sedged grass and fields by the shore, death messages given in charge to survivors, the hiss of the surgeon's knife, the gnawing teeth of his saw, wheeze clucks, swash of falling blood, short, wild scream, and long, dull, tapering groan, these so, these irretrievable. So he's continuing the same story, it looks like, and so I wonder what to make of that 
break? Why, why break 35 and start 36 if it's the same scene? I think it must have to do with establishing a parallel between, again, between 34 and 35 that he wants us to notice, um, particularly the way that they both end with a late hour. Um, but, then, but then to continue the story um, seems to suggest, right, maybe to your question about what is the victory or what is the end goal, that it's an ongoing process and it's, it's not finished when the battle ends. There still has to be this, this reckoning um, that takes place. And obviously, like, if you survive the battle, but you don't survive your wounds or your ship sinks, then you're not <laughs> going to live to tell the story, right? You're, you've got to make it, um, you've got to make the, the tale uh, be passed on. In some way, you have to, um, uh, yeah, reckon with, I guess, all of this, this massive imagery, these material things, uh, cut of cordage, dangle of rigging, right? And each of them is kind of, um, is, is like almost inviting you back into life, right? They're, they're so um, sensual, uh, particularly the, the smell of the, the fields by the shore. Um, that, that's, that's one kind of uh, invitation coming here. But the other is, um, right, the hiss of the surgeon's knife, the knife. So like the activity of those who survive and what they're trying to do to save the lives of uh, their um, compatriots, right? Uh, maybe even of the enemy, right? Like, cause we, I, kind of, I think we kind of skipped it, but in the other one, he had them um, release the prisoners, right? To give them a chance to survive, which is again, a, a totally like selfless, noble action, even at the height of a life and death struggle in, in the battle um, to, to think of the prisoners, the enemy, and yet want to give them the best possible chance um, it's like, uh, I guess, again, sort of like the, the human spirit sort of triumphant over all yes. sorts of circumstances. And, uh, and, but the last line here really stood out to me. Um, we get all those sounds, wheeze, cluck, swash of falling blood, short wild scream and long dull tapering groan. These so, these irretrievable. What is these? Um, the sounds? The life, the, the, the dying person there, I, I'm not quite sure. And it's like, even in the midst of victory, there's always an element of loss, is what I kind of take from that. Yeah, the experiences themselves are lost because they are never to be had again, simply represented in a ghost-like way. You said so many interesting things. Also, uh, I, I, I would note that he's, yeah, you, the highs are high like in 35, but the lows are low in 36, that he tells not only the story if he's going to be a universalist of the great heroic moment, but also of what happens afterwards, which mm -hmm. is also, I would say, to some extent, Homeric and Virgilian mm -hmm. and, and Dantistic, that part of an epic is not just being a simple hero story, but showing, you know, death and dealing with strong emotion and um, dealing with uh, burning bodies in the Iliad and games of death in book 23 um and you know a begging father going to Achilles and but but that I think you really nailed it when you suggested that is the human element even within a war story that we look for that makes the story great and that like Achilles in the Iliad giving the body of Hector whom he had hated for killing his best friend um back to Priam for no mm -hmm. cost just because of the humanity of the situation, just because of the, 
the sort of will of the gods slash, but, but they don't affect him in this decision. He makes it himself. Just he is so deeply moved by the father coming and kissing the hands of his son slayer, his favorite son, his heir, that he gives the body back without killing Priam, which is his goal, of course, mm. gives him, would give him pretty much ultimate glory because then Troy falls to him, which it never will. But that's what makes the story great. Not all the fighting, the people getting, you know, spears in the spleen, but a great man who would look, who would come to hate his enemy, committing an act of love to his ultimate enemy and showing this humanity to an individual, even though he didn't, he, he shows such inhumanity to, to a people themselves. And that that's like what a human is. Um, and that's what he's trying to nail here. That you're not just the hero story, you're the story of what comes after as well. And, and that's what he's going to represent. And there's also a small purgatorial element in him talking about a few large stars overhead, silent and mournful shining, also sort of a birth of Jesus image, right? Being guided by the stars. Right. Um, and also Dantistic in that, you know, being guided by the stars or your fate guided by the stars or your birth calendar or something. They were big into astrology and, during Dante's time, big alchemy scene. Um, but um, he, he actually does dismiss that idea, I think, in an argument in the Purgatorio, it might be as late as the parody. So, um, but he he's he's pretty anti that. In any case, uh, the stars are what you see at the end of each canticle: the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the parody. So it's the last word, Stella, of each of them, and uh, that's sort of an indication of a renewal of hope when you can look at a star. And so, uh, well. I'm I'm not sure exactly what that's doing there. I just kind of noticed that connection. So, yeah, well. Well, it's it makes sense, right? Like when you're fighting, when you're in the midst of the battle, you might lose sight of that that a uh, hopeful perspective. Yeah. But then, as the as the smoke clears, right, as the fog and the fury kind of subsides, and you you can look around a bit, that's what you sort of see again. Alongside all the wreckage, there's also those stars that shine. Um, mournful again that kind of personification um that attribution of intentions and, and and feeling to to nature that seems like inevitably part of what it is to to be human as well um to ascribe meaning to practically every uh everything around you um i had a thought about the uh the the way that he incorporates war and battle uh, into his his epic here, which is simply that he doesn't do it right away, right? It's not a it's not an epic about a battle. He could have easily done something like that, an epic about the Civil War or the Revolution, as the great national poet that he was aspiring to be. But instead, Whitman, into his major poem, sort of weaves these these threads of war and battle, and just these single images and single stories, rather than the full epic treatment. And yet somehow manages to, I think in that short time, convey much, as you're pointing out, of what the, the great classical epics, which deal a lot more with, with wars, um, do. And in, in some respect, it's like they're sort of, um, they're inverse of one another because you get something similar in the Iliad where there's little images and little scenes woven in, typically within those long similes and things like that, of, of everyday life and right. of um, nature and of 
you know, life outside of war. And so in Whitman, it's the reverse. You get the war woven in as these little individual scenes in the midst of this huge panoramic mosaic thing that he's doing. Uh, just to remind you, yeah, uh, this is also a part of and maybe even a, a very crucial and, and necessary part of, of the rest of it. Yeah, and even then, he, uh, he, I completely agree. And he, even then, uh, when he's describing more, has much of this naturalistic imagery still make its way back in, right? And mm -hmm. which is also Homeric. Um, like you were saying about the similes, like, you know, to describe a moment when, like, somebody was enjoying the company of his wife before he, had, or failing to have ever had to done that and have worked mm -hmm. very hard to pay for her, pay, paid the bride price for her, and then, you know, dies, or was the great, the favorite son of like a parent or something like that, or, or had just uh, gotten his first like uh, facial hair and was so young. But uh, even here, like you get like, you know, he, get, he gets away from the war and back to the description of the environment, like the shock mm -hmm. or the soothe of the, ra the waves, um, the black and impassive of the guns, uh, just a description of the scenery, litter of powder parcels, strong scent, the large stars, the sea breeze, the sedgy grass, the fields by the shore, and then some more, uh, these are still naturalistic, even though they're sort of human naturalistic, right? Hiss of surgeon's knife, it's part of what we do, and we're part of nature, so it's naturalistic. It's just a basic experience. The gnawing teeth of his, his saw, so maybe just kind of like either the extremes of what happens within nature or just how far away we can get or, or like, or the range of experience, even like how beautiful the sea spray is in one's face, or large stars to the hiss of a surgeon's knife, like with somebody crying out in pain, having their leg amputated after being shot. Um, right. Uh, and I mean, I, that is part of the epic to try and represent the soul of a people, and the soul of a people is, you know, good, yin and yang, you know, bad and good or good and evil. And uh, this, is, this is what most people, I guess, would say are bad, is bad. But he, he has sort of an epic writer and is sort of laying it forth for our judgment, right? Like we can decide whether this is a good part of existence or not. He'll just represent the experience for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, again, a, that, that's something that the Greek poets are praised for as well is their equanimity um, in portraying and sort of their objectivity, if you like, like just sort of showing you this, this clarity, this window onto what they are describing, whatever it is, um, which, whereas, you know, later authors, the subjectivity of the uh, author often inter interferes or at least is sort of mingled with what they're, what they're showing you. And I think Whitman here is attempting consciously or unconsciously to, uh, to sort of d demonstrate his mastery of, of both those elements, the, the impressionistic, the, the newer, if you like, the modern, um, as well as the, the clarity, the um, tranquility uh, uh, of, the, uh, of the classical. All right, well, so I, I, I guess uh, 37 is short, but I think we've done a good, good chunk here yeah, and these three really fit together nicely. So I think maybe we'll pause there. Um, so tomorrow we're planning to do uh, Final Fantasy VII. Is that right? 
Yes. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that too. And then Monday I have also perhaps we can do one of these and uh, Potter's Pockets. But we can oh talk yeah. About that then uh, one thing I just wanted to ask you about if you want to spend one minute talking about it and people can you know log off now if they want to or they can keep listening. Um, you the new scholarship fund that you just started. If you oh, want yeah. to about that. Well, Oh yeah, so do uh, go check it out if you are interested in this kind of project. Um, based on any and all donations that I get in my um, podcasts and things like that uh, through Anchor, um, you will see that those are going to be matched up to, I think I said $100 per year, something like that, uh, and will be dispersed to... Um, scholars and creative uh, projects that people um, want to get more recognition for essentially and get um, compensation right for their for their efforts I think it's just a way to try to keep promoting and um, supporting uh, the the thoughtful appreciation of of things like video games and fantasy stories and uh, all the things that are, you know, I think woefully underserved in um, a lot of education settings, but which are the things, at least for me, that made me really want to learn, you know, in the first place. Um, yeah. And so just kind of, that's that's kind of the idea behind it. Uh, you can read more about it uh, at the New School blog. Um, and yeah, just share your thoughts. and. Uh, could you could you say what your your anchor station's name is? Bookworm Games, and I don't know if you have the website. Right. On and what is the name of your your blog, or at least the the URL for the website? Yeah, it's, it it should show up. I don't know if it still does. If you Google New School Notes, probably lots of other stuff will come up before it. But it's it's the URL is newschoolnotes.blogspot.com, I think. And there is if you search for Bookworm. And you go to the, the podcast in the description, there should be links to the blog. Um, you can find it through Facebook. You can find it different ways. Hopefully it'll move up the, the Google rankings eventually here, but who knows? Yeah. Well, you know, we're putting a lot of work out there. And so if things, when things start happening, I think they'll start happening fast. And we have seen, uh, you know, a lot of interest lately in what we're doing. And, you know, to those of you listening, please keep listening. We're going to keep doing our best and putting out as much as we can, as fast as we can. Cool. All right, thank Thanks you again. for the chance. Have a good one. You too.